This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Op plants trying to kill me. Yeah. Uh, well, they're, they're trying to protect themselves first and foremost. And so if that means that you have to die, then, then they're happy, happy for that to happen. They, they defend themselves just like every other living thing will defend itself. And if they don't defend themselves appropriately or with enough vigor, then they're going to die and they're going to go extinct, just like the majority of life on earth has gone extinct for us. So everything that's made it through this gauntlet of evolution has been battle hardened and is has certain defenses and while animals are kinetic we can run away or fight back plants can't and so they have to have other means of defense they're just sitting there they're sitting ducks but over 90 percent of the biomass of, of life on earth are plant life is plant life and so they have to have very very robust defenses or else they would be wiped out because animals and insects are constantly trying to attack them so they have number of different defenses they can be spiky they can be woody a tree can grow up tall away from the terrestrial animals that, that can't climb and aren't having a long neck like a giraffe and other things you know might have spikes or might have sap that's very sticky make latex is where we get latex gloves this is actually when plants make this they start chewing the leaves they release latex and it actually works as like a glue and adhesive and glues the animal's mouth shut and now they can't actually open it again so they forcibly stop them from eating the plant anymore. And the plant, animal actually often dies because they can't get their mouth unstuck. So it's, it's quite a serious uh, condition that you can, you can get, even though it doesn't poison you, you can still wind up in an animal dying. And then there are direct toxins that can just harm you. Hemlock, for instance, can block the GABA receptors in your brain. And so your brain cannot control and slow down the excitation of your neurons. And so you get intractable seizures and die within minutes. You can't stop them. And there are a number of other, other defense chemicals, literally thousands and thousands that we know of. Plants make around a million different chemicals, most of which are used to defend themselves. So many can disrupt your hormones. They can block nutrients. They can disrupt your digestive enzymes They're like protease inhibitors and in wheat and soy will stop you from breaking down protein effectively so you can't absorb it properly so you get malnutrition. Uh, phytic acid will bind with different minerals like magnesium or calcium, zinc, and bind it irreversibly to us anyway. And so we can't break that bond. We can't absorb it. We can't use it. Oxalates will do the same thing. Oxalates are a variety of poison. <clears throat> that quite a lot of different plants use, you know, spinach being a, a major one that we, we eat constantly. Uh, one cup, is it a cup? I think it's a cup of spinach has around 600 milligrams of uh, oxalates, uh, depending on the source that you look at. Um, over 200 milligrams a day can actually be damaging to human health. And that's something that's been well recorded and studied for well over 100 years, probably 200 years or so. And we have you know, studies and publications and peer-reviewed literature, even as recently as the 90s and the 2000s, talking about oxalate poisonings and instances where people had three, 4,000 milligrams of oxalates in one sitting and actually died. That actually killed them. It was fatal. Uh, Liam Hemsworth famously went <clears throat> on a vegan diet and started having all these um, basically oxalate smoothies every morning. He had a lot of spinach, like just tons and tons of spinach and other greens. And within three weeks of doing that, he put himself in the hospital. He was so sick and he had a lot of kidney stones, 75% of, of kidney stones or calcium oxalate stones. So this is the oxalate binding to the calcium in your blood and stripping it away and, and taking that out. It could be also that your body's trying to, to do that, to flush this out of your system because it can be actually directly toxic to your organs as well. So we eat a lot of these things. We have no idea uh, all the damaging chemicals that are in them, we, we actually used to know this stuff. This is well documented in the medical literature as well as the bi biological literature and botany and horticulture. Anyone who studied these things knows full well of plants' toxic potential. And most people know this as well. You get lost in the woods and you run out of food. You can't eat just any random plant, right? Most plants will make you very sick or even kill you. You have to know exactly what you can eat. And most survivalists and most special forces or military people, they say when you're caught in a situation where you have to live off the land, 
don't eat anything that doesn't move. That's a rule that I heard from uh, from special forces guys in the U.S. So that that means all plants, right? You just don't eat any plant. You just don't take the risk, and you don't eat carrion. You don't eat dead animals or anything like that. So and spiders. Yeah, you're not supposed to eat spiders as well because they have a, like a poison sack as well. So. <clears throat> That's the sort of the, the long answer, but it's um, I think it's important to sort of flesh that out a bit. Are they do they have a, a vindictive will against us and want us to die? I, I don't know. You'd have to ask them, but they certainly have a sense of self survival. All life does, down to single celled organisms. Everything is is trying to protect its life and trying to procreate. That is the meaning of life uh, from a strictly biological sense, and so. You know, these plants are trying to do the exact same thing and they will defend themselves with with uh, deadly force if necessary. I started our conversation with a bit of brevity, but let's let's go back a little bit. What is your background? So I'm an American medical doctor. I uh, am a neurosurgical resident and I currently practice in Australia. I also have a private practice in functional health and metabolic functional medicine, metabolic health, preventative medicine, whatever you want to call it where we try to, you know, through, you know, uh, a traditional allopathic medicine and diet and lifestyle interventions, try to get people well and keep them well. So they're not beholden to all the different sorts of medications and surgeries that they may need. So instead of disease management, <clears throat> actually looking to prevent disease from occurring in the first place or find the root cause of diseases, eliminate that uh, from their their situation, try to get them back to normal health. And that's where a carnivore diet and or just dietary interventions in general has, has played a huge role because I think that the majority of the chronic diseases that we treat these days are not diseases per se, but toxicities, toxic buildup of a species inappropriate diet and a lack of species specific nutrition, namely too many plants that were not evolved or designed biologically to detoxify properly and appropriately or safely completely and not enough meat that we are biologically designed to eat. And so when you start eliminating these, these foods from people's diets, their health can actually recover quite significantly. And there's actually quite a lot of literature in that for a number of different diseases, showing the reversible nature of these diseases, like uh, type two diabetes. There's a number of large controlled human trials showing that a ketogenic diet, any ketogenic diet can reverse type two diabetes and the carnivore diet is a, a ketogenic diet. You're just eating meat. You're not eating carbs. And, <clears throat> and then there's other things too, like Crohn's ulcerative colitis. These have been shown in the current literature in gastroenterology to be reversible. If you put them on an elemental diet, which is just stripping away everything except the core nutrients, macro and micronutrients that we need, which is what a steak is. And you just giving and this was done with an elemental diet with like a powdered, highly processed thing. It's just the nutrients and so you take it as a shake. But <clears throat> a steak does just the same thing. But if you give them this elemental diet, it's it gets people with Crohn's disease out of an acute flare-up where they could be having bloody diarrhea 20, 30 times a day. It gets them out of that and fixes them quicker than prednisolone, so steroids, which is the gold standard uh, for immunosuppression to stop that reaction. So this is better than the best medical treatment. So what does that suggest? You're, you're, it's suggesting, and then when you start eating all the plants and fiber and things like that, again, all of a sudden, you know, the symptoms come back. So what does that mean? That means there's something in there that's causing this disease to happen. There's another study that I found interesting. It was a controlled trial in humans with Crohn's disease. And they found that, that if you remove carbohydrates and fiber, that this kept people with Crohn's disease in remission on average 51 months, so over four years. And then contrasted this with control group that continued eating carbohydrates and fiber. They didn't go into remission at all on average. On average, they stayed in remission zero months. Okay. So what does that mean? That means there's something in the carbohydrates and the fiber that's precipitating and kicking off this Crohn's disease. So that's, that's a couple examples of this reversible nature of these diseases, but there, there's so many more. I mean, we were, we were curing people with rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's, gout, even gout, ulcerative colitis, chronic Lyme disease, and so many other things, even in the 18, 1800s and 1900s by putting people on, <clears throat> on a pure red meat and water diet. This is all throughout the medical literature. <clears throat> 
been a number of books written about this by a number of different doctors on the subject, you know, most notably uh, Dr. J.H. Salisbury, for whom you know, the Salisbury steak was named after. And so it's, it's been a huge blessing in my medical practice to realize that humans are carnivores biologically. That's just the kind of animal that we are. And, but we're not eating as such. We're not living as such. And this is completely deranging and derailing our health. You know, if you, if you ask any zookeeper, if you feed an animal, something it doesn't evolve on something that doesn't eat in the wild, it gets very sick. But what does it get sick with? It gets obesity, heart disease, liver disease, diabetes, cancer, arthritis, autoimmune diseases, so-called human diseases. And they'll say that they get human diseases if you feed them the wrong food, not even human food, just the wrong food. And this is why there are signs at the zoo that say, don't feed the animals, it makes them very sick. Don't feed the animals what you're eating right now. The thing that's making you sick right now, it makes them sick too, shockingly enough. And dogs and cats are known carnivores, and yet we give them grain and plant-based kibble. A lot of veterinarians are somehow being taught that even though, yes, they're carnivores, you should still feed them vegetables for some damn reason. I don't know where they come up with that logic, but why, if they are carnivores and these plants have toxins that can harm them and they don't have the detoxifying capabilities to, to weather these, these toxins safely, why would you ever give them these things? That's not going to be optimal for their health. So what's going to be optimal for your health is what you are biologically designed to eat. And that for us is, is a carnivore diet as well. So I've, uh, I've just been sort of incorporating that in my medical practice in, uh, in, in every way I can to try and help people, uh, live better lives. And, uh, I've started a, a YouTube channel and a podcast called the plant free MD. And then uh, my YouTube channel, just Anthony Chafee MD. And I just try to make videos discussing these sorts of things and discussing the studies and discussing, uh, the facts as they are laid out and try to help people, you know, retake their health. And just for clarity, you walk the talk. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 No, I've, I exclusively eat meat and, and drink water. I don't even use spices really. Like, you know, I won't be a baby about it. If I'm at a restaurant and there's some, some seasonings on it, I'm not going to like, I'll send it back and slap a, you know, slap the waiter or something like that. Um, but you know, I might sort of scrape some stuff off if there's like a bunch of sauce on it or something. But when I, I normally cook for myself and I just cook just beef basically. Yeah. So I've been, I've been doing this for, for about six years, uh, strong now, but I started this 23 years ago in my undergraduate degree at, at the university of Washington in Seattle. Um, when I was learning about how toxic plants were and how they were specifically toxic to humans and could cause cancer, they were carcinogenic. We've known since the 1980s that there are 10,000 times more pesticides and insecticides naturally occurring in the vegetables that we eat and the fruits that we eat than the pesticides we spray on them, right? Because this is, this is their natural defense. They make natural pesticides, natural insecticides to stop the insects and pests from eating them. That's how they survive. <clears throat> and this is why we have GMOs. You take a gene from wheat and then you put it in corn and now corn is protected from everything that wheat's protected from. And so you make it more poisonous. So less insects can eat it. You get better crop yields. You feed more people. So there's a benefit there on crop yields, but there's also a detriment because now it's, it's slightly more toxic. Um, and so we were learning this, uh, from a cancer perspective, just looking at the number of carcinogens. Oh, and that was the other thing too. We've known since that, in that same study from UC Berkeley, from professor Bruce Ames in 1989, that there are 10,000 times more toxins in plants than the pesticides we spray on them by weight. And that the ones in mushrooms, just white mushrooms, that those are 500 times more likely to cause cancer in animal models than the pesticides we sprayed on them, right? So it's not, it's not a, you know, when people say, well, well, but in the dosages that we're eating them, yes, in the dosages that we're eating them, they are 500 times more carcinogenic than pesticides. And if we're saying pesticides are bad for us and we should avoid them, well, then you should avoid the things that they're being sprayed on as well, because they're far worse. So we were, we were taught this, we went through a, a whole number of different plants and uh, like Brussels sprouts, we were told had 136 known human carcinogens in them. Uh, mushrooms had over a hundred, but also spinach, kale, lettuce, celery, cabbage, cucumber, broccoli, even fruits and, and other vegetables, they all had 60, 80, over hundred known, named, identified, cataloged carcinogens. And they were quite abundant, as I said, from the work of Professor Bruce Ames. 
So we were quite taken aback by that. We're very shocked by this. And I remember looking around wildly and everybody's just, everyone was looking around wildly. We were looking for someone who was in on the joke because we couldn't imagine that this was actually real. It dawned on us that, okay, this guy's serious. And I remember thinking in my head, well, but, but vegetables are still good for you though, right? Because you've just been inundated with this stuff for decades that you have to eat vegetables, have to eat vegetables, even though you know that they have these toxins. And you know, since seventh grade, I was taught in seventh grade, plants and animals are in an evolutionary arms race. Plants becoming more and more poisonous, so less and less animals can eat them. Animals becoming more and more adapted to specific poisons and specific plants so they can eat that plant and survive and thrive. And then that's their dedicated food source and that's their niche. Uh, and that's why koalas eat eucalyptus, nothing else eats eucalyptus. And so this is very specific. So animals that eat plants eat very specific plants. They don't eat a wide variety of plants. We are the only animal on earth that eats such a variety of things. We are not biologically adapted to eat most of these things. You could argue maybe that some of these plants are better than others, but you, you cannot say that we are adapted to eat all of these wild variety of plants, uh, specifically because you have to denature them, treat them, cook them, chemically treat them to detoxify them. So obviously we're not naturally designed to eat them. Um, so I remember thinking that, well, but, but plants are still good for you though, right? Or vegetables. And he just looked at us and gave us a funny look and he said, uh, I don't eat salad. I don't eat vegetables. I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you. And at that moment I said, right, I'm not eating any more plants. And I just went to the store and I was just walking around the aisles. I was like, what in God's name do I eat? Everything is a plant or has plants in it. And I just randomly walked by some eggs. I was like, okay, eggs, eggs don't come from plants. You know, it's meat. Meat doesn't come from plants. Okay, I'll just eat some eggs and meat. And for the next two weeks, I was just, just eating that and was just looking around all these things. Oh, I can't eat that. Oh, that has plants. Oh, my God. I was just sort of at a loss. And then after two weeks, I just didn't care. All I wanted to eat was meat and eggs. I felt amazing. My athletic performance went through the roof. I was playing rugby at the college level and the senior level in Seattle. And I just felt amazing. My athleticism, my fitness just went through the roof. My brain worked on a, on a new level. I just felt amazing in every regard. And, uh, and I just kept, kept feeling like that. So I did that for about five years until I was playing rugby, uh, in England. And I just sort of slipped off of it because some of the meat was breaded or crumbed. And I was thinking, oh, well, is it that big of a deal that it has some crumbs on it? Dose makes the poison, all that sort of stuff. And so I started sort of eating that and I actually did notice a big difference, but I didn't, I didn't realize that that was the difference at the time. I just remember thinking, you know, but like, why am I not feeling as just superhuman, amazing as I normally do? Like what's, what's going on? And looking back, that's when that changed. And the biggest change was that I didn't have that mindset of I'm not eating any plants at all. Now it was, well, a little bit here and there. It's not that big a deal. And then it that, that escalated and I started eating a bit more and a bit more. And then I ate a processed food diet. I was still mostly eating meat, but I would have a salad every now and then and some bread or something like that occasionally. So, uh, but it made a big difference. And then sort of six years ago, I came across information that it was, it was, you know, clear to me, there was like no humans biologically are carnivores. And that's what I was doing. That's why I was, I was living as a carnivore for five years. I was eating to my biological status for five years and I never felt better. That was, that was a period of my life that I was, that I had the best health that I've ever had until right now. And so I stopped eating all plants and said, right, I knew it. I knew plants were trying to kill me, get rid of these stupid things. And I just got rid of them. All I was eating was vegetables, spinach, kale, broccoli, and meat and lean meat. And I cut out the vegetables, started eating a lot more meat, started upping the fat completely. And my, my life changed dramatically. I was 38 years old. I lost 10 kilos in 10 days. So that's 23 pounds in 10 days. And, and then my body just started just transforming. I started shredding fat and stacking on muscle. And I felt so good after two weeks. I said, right, I'm going to play some, uh, some rugby again. I went out to my team in Seattle who had just gone professional is the Seattle Seawolves. And that was the inaugural season for the MLR in, in America. And I was back out there playing. I just got back from doing humanitarian work in Bangladesh in the refugee camps there. And so I was completely out of shape. I hadn't played a full season of rugby in three years at that point. And uh, I was fat and out of shape and I just felt great. And I was at a dead sprint running all over the track, keeping up with everyone who'd been training while I was gone and it purely diet. And, uh, and I got in, in, you know, back in insane shape again, I felt better at 38 
eating carnivore than I did at 27 eating a whole food meat-based diet, but with some vegetables and, and uh, bread as well. So it's a massive, massive difference. And I have no, no interest in going back. I have to do a segue uh, because it's very rare that um, I hear an American speaking about rugby. Now I'm from South Africa <laughs> and you'll obviously know about the Springboks. But I have to say yeah, that yeah. Uh, I do feel sorry for <laughs> for American rugby players. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's um, you know, you, you got to start somewhere, you know, and it's a, it's a great game. Even though, like when you know, we play, <laughs> play. I mean, you know, I've definitely been on the on the receiving ends of some shellackings, you know. But uh, <laughs> you know, but I, you know, you put your licks in there, and uh, you know, as. Brian O'Driscoll from Ireland said in the 2011 World Cup, you know, I mean, they they absolutely, you know, beat the pants off of the U.S. But at the same time, I mean, we took like six guys out of the out of the game, you know, with just nailing them with tackles. And as, as O'Driscoll said, he said, when you get hit by the Americans, you stay hit. Right. So I think that's the <laughs> addition that we've brought to the game that we've got that, that physicality uh, in, in that game. And so we don't have we don't have the, the skills. We don't have. Uh, or, you know, as many skills as, as, you know, everyone else who's been, you know, had this, you know, culture of rugby from grade school, um, high level, you know, uh, rugby from early on, uh, but it's growing and it's the fastest growing sport in America and it's a fun game. And so, you know, but what we, we lack in that sort of experience and, uh, uh, you know, and, and the, the organization behind it, behind the national team, which, you know, has its upheavals and, and its issues year in and year out. Uh, you know, people have a lot of heart and they have a lot of athleticism. And so, you know, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that, that, uh, better days, uh, are here to come. You know? <laughs> it, it's, it's a lot more, it's a lot more manly than that gridiron stuff. I mean, they don't wear shoulder pads for one. <laughs> what is that? And, um, you know, the, the thing about gridiron though, is that that protects the hitter and not the hitty. So that have, has your helmet and your pads here, but the, all this is vulnerable. And so if I'm coming into you and I blast you in the ribs, like you're, you're getting metal helmet and pads just like, you know, right up you know, <laughs> underneath your ribs. You can, you can really waste someone. And, uh, and the good thing about that too, is, is you feel so protected that mm. you just go in like a guided missile and you just, you just don't care because you, you can run into a, you know, a, telephone pole with those pads and you'll be fine and so you know you just you can just blast people and i think that i think that part of that mentality of knowing that you can just go in and nail somebody you know some of the people that that has translated into rugby as well because you start getting those big big hitters that really want to you know take someone's head off and so and that's why you stay hit you know when you when you play the americans but you know thankfully like like sevens we, we've done a lot a lot more with sevens the seven program has mm -hmm. really come around you know, we've had, uh, I think we, you know, we, what we placed second, uh, in the last couple of, or a couple of years ago. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's huge. That's huge for, mm. for an American team. When we talk about a carnivore diet, what is it that we're talking about? So what, what I think of it is, is really just meat and water. You know, what, what is a lion going to eat? Some people would call that a, you know, a lion diet or something like that. Some people would say, well, maybe it's, it's predominantly meat or meat based. And that, I mean, I think that's fine. I think that's, that's moving in the right direction. That's certainly better. You're getting a lot of these nutrients that are very important to you. And as long as you're eating a whole food diet and you're, and most of it meat, you're going to crowd out all the other sort of things that aren't as good for you. Um, but I think to really get the full benefit, you really need to eat what you are strictly designed to eat, which is just meat and water and actually high fat meat and water, because fat is actually very, very good for you. It's a, it's an essential nutrient. You have to have it. And it's, um, and so I think it's just as important what not to eat as what to eat. So my rule for myself is no plants, no sugar or any sweeteners and nothing artificial. So that will go for sauces, seasonings, and drinks as well. So anytime I think this, someone says, well, what about coffee? Well, it's a plant. Well, what about honey? Well, it's sugar. What about erythritol and monk fruit sugar? Well, it's, it's a sweetener and it's also from plants. And so, you know, you, it's a double no, but that's that for me i found gives the most benefit because you're, you're just going to completely eliminate out even just the little gravel on your path and so yeah um, most people are going to be able to tolerate some of these things and we have an ability to detoxify these things they're not going to kill you overnight you can get a certain point they will kill you but it's not good for you before that 
you know, maybe at very microdose, I mean, even microdoses of arsenic have been, have been shown in some studies to confer some sort of hormetic advantage. And so maybe in very small doses, but you don't know what those doses are. You don't know how little it is. And there's hundreds of different chemicals in each plant and you don't know what they are and you don't know what their dosages are. And so just saying, well, I, I bet it's okay is, is a pretty, pretty loose, uh, you know, playing it pretty loose with your health. And I've just noticed through my own trials with myself and through my recommendations to my patients and seeing their, uh, their health outcomes that they actually do quite a lot better with just strict meat and water, especially for things like autoimmune diseases, even with autoimmune diseases, with autoimmune diseases, you know, even the type of meat matters because a lot of animals are being fed the wrong things. You have pigs being fed a bunch of soy and chicken soy feed. That's not what they're supposed to eat. And so they don't detoxify that properly. And that can get this sort of gunk in their meat. And, and that can translate in. I mean, it's not going to necessarily bother you or I, but someone who has rheumatoid arthritis or or Crohn's disease, it, it can actually trigger an autoimmune flare-up. And so they just have to be a bit more careful. So it, it, even very subtle amounts of these toxins can actually cause a bit of harm to the genetically susceptible. Uh, I don't have those, those conditions, um, thank God, but you know, I still feel better when I don't even have anything, even when I have like a bit of spices or something like that, you know, my, my nose will get a bit stuffy, my face will get itchy, maybe my asthma will, will play up or I might get a bit of brain fog. And so that's not, that's not ending my day, but it's annoying and it's not perfect. And I like feeling perfect. It makes a, it makes a big difference. I think. There are a couple overlapping threads here and I just want to touch on that. So the one thread is that protein and fat are, are good. Carbohydrates is completely unnecessary. Some people might argue that you can have a high protein and high fat diet when you're eating plants. But now what you're suggesting is that the plants themselves are also the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Oh, look, you can, you can certainly get a lot of nutrients from plants, but you cannot get a complete complement. And so, you know, having an omnivorous diet, you're getting meat and you're getting plant that will get complete nutrition that will get everything you need, but you don't have to eat the plants. You can get that just from meat. Meat is a complete meal. You get everything you need in the proportion that you need it. You get nothing that you don't need. It's, it's a perfect meal. Plants have some nutrients. They're living organisms. And so they have things that are in them that are good for living organisms, but they come at a price with those different defense chemicals or the phytotoxins or the, um, you know, different sorts of things that disrupt your digestion, bind to different nutrients, block your digestion of other things, have, have latex and glue your mouth shut, different things like that. So it comes at a price, but also another way that plants defend themselves is they defend their nutrients as well. So they bind their different nutrients in ways that are difficult for animals to unravel glucose, for, for instance fiber trees are made out of glucose. Those are strings of glucose called cellulose. It's fiber, right? Well, we, we like glucose. You know, we have glucose, we make glucose, you know, and, and as you say, carbohydrates are, are non-essential. We know that that is well-documented in the medical literature. There is, there isn't a question of that. There are entire civilizations alive right now that don't consume any carbohydrates throughout their entire existence, generation after generation after generation. And we know because we've studied our biochemistry at a molecular level that when you stop eating carbohydrates, your insulin goes down to a better level and you start making blood sugar and glycogen to exacting levels and you make ketones and, uh, and you just perpetuate your life running on your fat, which I think is the natural way of doing things. I think that's our natural biochemical state. That's the biochemical state of most animals in nature and because they don't run on carbs even animals like herbivores that just eat plants they get that glucose from fiber but they can't break that down either no vertebrate animal can break down fiber and so it's actually the bacteria in their gut that's breaking that down and eating that and as a byproduct the waste of the bacteria is actually short-chain fatty acids which are 100 saturated and then the bacteria die off and the and the animal absorbs that as protein so they're eating plants they're eating fiber what, what they're absorbing is fat and protein just like us we need fat and protein as well but we can't get that from fiber we can't break down fiber so we can't we need to get that from uh, animals that have already done the hard work for us and those animals 
or biologically adapted to break those bonds apart, those different things. So they can get the magnesium, they can get the calcium, they can get the iron. We can't really get iron from a lot of plant sources. There's a lot of iron in spinach. We can't really access it. And because of the oxalates, you know, we can actually, be, there's actually a good amount of calcium in there too. But when you feed people uh, oxal or, or, or spinach, uh, and there are actually human trials in this, calcium levels go down, blood calcium levels go down. And that's because those oxalates are actually stripping out more calcium than, than we can get out of the plant. And so um, that's, an, that's another indication that we are not designed to eat these things because if we were designed to eat them, we would be able to get, unlock those nutrients very easily or at least enough. Um, the protein as well, that's not very bioavailable and it has things like protease inhibitors in a number of different things. Soy and wheat are rife with these things. And that blocks our enzymes from breaking down any protein. So even if you eat a sandwich, you know, on whole wheat bread with meat in it, which is 100% bioavailable protein, it's now less than that because that protease inhibitor has gotten away. And in fact, the fiber actually is a physical block and, and uh, prevents the absorption from uh, these nutrients as well. So you get less nutrition. And the argument in the 80s was, well, that's a good thing because people are getting fatter. And so if you eat a bunch of fiber, it actually block all these nutrients. You do, it'll make you feel full. You won't get a, a bunch of calories and you'll, you'll feel full, but you, you won't eat as much and it'll block nutrition. Why would we have evolved to reduce the amount of nutrients that we get from food? That doesn't make sense. Uh, that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not a survival mechanism getting less out of what you're eating, right? So that doesn't make any sense. But that, that's how plants do this. So um, we are not designed to eat these things. And there's a lot of evidence for that. But uh, just, a, I mean, just at the baseline, we know that we're not meant, we're not herbivores, certainly, because A, we can't break down fiber. That's a major nutrition source for herbivorous animals that eat fibrous plants. And we cannot even get a basic complement of nutrients from the plantar fungus kingdom. We have to get something from meat. We, you, there's nothing in plants that you have to have that you can't get from meat, but there are things in meat that you have to have that you cannot get from plants. And so you can eat plants if you want to. You take you know, the bad with the good, however, but you don't have to. And so, you know, and eating that in exclusion will cause harm. Now, if you're contrasting that with a processed food diet and you're eating a bunch of garbage, and that's what a lot of these epidemiological studies that, that vilify meat, they say, well, when you reduce meat and you eat more whole fruits and vegetables, they, people have slightly better health outcomes. And I mean, I do mean slightly. These, these aren't great studies. But the, the problem with that, these are epidemiological studies, they show weak relationships and they have a lot of confounding factors. And there was also a lot of bias because a lot of these things have been debunked uh, for being very lazy studies or even flat out fraudulent and biased studies because they'll say, well, there's meat in toppings on pizza sometimes, sometimes, and therefore pizza's meat. And there's meat in like fast food because it's hamburger. Oh, well, everyone knows hamburger is meat. Well, there's also a bun. There's also sugary sauces. There's also a bunch of vegetables and tomatoes. There's also a bunch of uh, potatoes, which are nightshades, which you, you know, it can actually kill you. You people, you know, you get, let a, a potato sit out in the sun. It turns green. That can, that can be deadly. The amount of solanine that's in it, or it grows a little root. You can't eat that root because that will that will uh, poison you. Um, but we fry these up in seed oils, which we know are toxic to humans in a number of different ways. In fact, in the 1970s, we used to use seed oils as immunosuppressant therapies for uh, transplant patients, for organ transplant patients. They were using this, they were, they were giving seed oils to humans to, to make it so they didn't reject their new kidneys. And it worked. The problem is they had to stop because the rate of cancer shot up in these patients. So like, okay, well, that's not safe. So we know that these are harmful and yet we deep fry these fries in them. Uh, we're using trans fats for a long time, which don't exist in nature and will cause harm. And, uh, and then a big sugary drink. So that, there's a lot more going on there than meat, but fast food equals meat. That's what they said. And that's, that's a clear bias. And so what that's really showing is that not eating processed garbage is going to be
better for you. I, I no one is going to say that that's not true. I don't think, I mean, I'm sure there's some, some people out there that are crazy enough to do that, but uh, no, no sane person is going to argue that. So, you know, that's what they're conflating this. They're saying that meat's bad because of those studies, but that's completely untrue. And either way, if you're only eating plants, you cannot get a basic complement of nutrients from the plants that you're eating. So you know that we're not designed to do that. You would have to take supplements. And if you have to take supplements, then by definition, your diet is deficient. Uh, so we know that we can't get B12, D3, or K2 in plants. They just don't exist. Now they'll say that, well, there's a lot of vitamin K and kale, uh, but it's vitamin K1. We need vitamin K2. And the conversion between K1 to K2 is, is about 1%. Uh, they say, well, there's a lot of uh, beta carotene in carrots, and that turns into uh, retinol, the uh, you know, vitamin A, but it's actually only about 20% of it kicks over into vitamin A. And so you'd have to eat six pounds of carrots a day to get enough vitamin A from carrots, right? So, and there are all these essential fatty acids, DHA, EPA, that you cannot get from plants. People say, well, maybe you can you can convert it from ALA. No, you can't. There's a lot of studies that say, no, you can't, not at all. There's some studies that say, oh, yeah, well, maybe it ticks over a little bit. But it's like, again, a very, very small percentage kick turnover. We don't make it very well ourselves. We really do need this uh, in, in more abundance than we can, we can make ourselves, and certainly that we get from plants. And there are a number of other things. And there are many, many other micronutrients that we haven't even discovered yet. That, that exists that we, we need uh, and that you still don't get in plants. So that's the basic argument against being a, a vegan or an herbivore. Now, if you want to be vegan because of ethical reasons or any other reason, you know, that's fine. That, that's up to you. I would suggest you take some supplements. Um, but to argue that we are vegetarian, you know, vegetarians by nature, vegans by nature, herbivores by nature is, is to simply deny the facts but anthony i have gone my whole life being a vegan and i'm perfectly healthy yeah well you know um the thing is is that uh you know people can do these diets but they have to take a lot of supplements i think so, i think it's just about 84 percent of vegans and vegetarians start eating meat again within a year because they have such poor health outcomes and something like 75% of vegans and vegetarians eat meat when they're drunk. Uh, you know, that's probably the only thing keeping them alive, you know, is every now and then they get a kebab and just, you know, that, that just keeps them going for another couple months. But, um, you know, most of these people have to take, they, they can get very sick, uh, especially if they're not eating uh, or, or not taking supplements and not getting B12 shots, uh, especially. There was a study out of Oxford in 2008 that showed uh, vegans after five years their, their brain and spinal cord shrank by, uh, by over 5% of volume. That's massive. Your brain is shrinking. You're not getting the requisite nutrients that you need to build and maintain your brain. B12 is one of these things. They, they sort of attributed it to the B12 is at very low B12 levels. And if you get, um, what is it? Lower than 400 uh, picograms per milliliter, I think, um, then you can actually get uh, demyelination and nerve damage. And so we actually see this in neurosurgery. We actually see vegans and vegetarians, their spinal cord is actually thinned. And so, you know, it, 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 you're, you're, you can see direct evidence of this neurological uh, effects that this can have. And, um, you know, they can take B12 and I, I think they should, and they can mitigate that, but there are other things uh, that go along with it as well. And I mean, just in just these plant sterols, they say, well, these are great because they interrupt our body's utilization and creation of uh, cholesterol. And that's good, right? Because cholesterol is really bad for you. Well, no, actually cholesterol is vital for life. Every single cell in your body is cholesterol. The cell membrane of every cell in our body is cholesterol. We have this lipid bilayer that makes up our membrane. It's cholesterol. I learned that in eighth grade. I remember looking at that going like, how can cholesterol be bad for us? We're made of cholesterol. We are cholesterol. Our brains are made of cholesterol. The axons are myelinated, insulated with cholesterol and saturated fat. And that is what makes the conductivity of our nerve cells and our brain cells faster. And so you start demyelinating that, you know, it, it's serious harm because it, it's going slower. Now the conductivity is going down, it's going slower, it's going slower. And 
you know, you are going to have neurological compromise because of that. And there are studies showing that below 400 uh, uh, B12 can can actually lead to demyelination and damage to your your neurons. But because we're eating less and less and less meat, even the, the standard Western diet, if you will, is is predominantly plant-based already. In America, uh, the average person in America derives 70% of their calories from, from plant-based sources, right? So we're already plant-based, right? And so most people are, are B12 deficient. And so the reference ranges for B12 are actually way too low. They actually include that 400, right? So in Australia, it's 130, 139 to 626 uh, in the area I am. And so you have that whole range below 400 and, and between 130 and 400 that we're saying that's normal. And so your doctor who may not know this will look at that and go, well, well it's in the reference range. It's normal. That reference range is an average for the community where you live. That is not the reference range for actual health. The actual re reference range for health for B12 is more like 800 to 1200 uh, picograms per milliliter. So that is a very, very, very different story. So a lot of these people that do vegan long-term, um, they, they require supplementation. If you require supplementation just to get basic nutrition, then by definition, your diet is deficient and it cannot be a good diet or even an adequate diet. Um, there have been a number of people that I've spoken to that have quit veganism after many, many, many years. One gentleman I had on my podcast uh, he, uh, he's from Canada and he was vegan for 21 years, but every now and then he, he would have some fish. He would just, his, his body was just like, I, I just need to have something. So that, that was, you know, the thing that kept him going and he would take, you know, supplements and things like that as well. And, and eventually he just realized that his body was just breaking down and this wasn't just old age and, you know, he's, he's not even old. Uh, and he was just like, okay, I need to make a change. And he started eating meat again. He went full carnivore and, and now he feels great. He's, he's, you know, aged backwards. He's, you know, a dancer. He does like, you know, street dancing, break dancing, things like that. And he's back doing everything he loved before. He's in so much pain and so weak that he just, he couldn't do, you know, uh, the thing that he loved. And now he's, now he's back, you know, break dancing with, with, uh, you know, teenagers and 20 year olds, you know, just all day. So it, it makes a huge difference. People can do whatever, but it will build up and will have an effect and, and it will have more of an effect if you're not eating uh, or not taking supplements or you're eating, you know, if you're not eating a, a, eating a very careful, balanced vegan diet. And so some people can do that um, and last a while, but they're not going to be in as good health as they would be otherwise. That's just the simple truth. There was a, there was a good study illustrating that the only study on earth that I know of that exists that compares what we're talking about, which is a whole food meat-based diet with a whole food plant-based diet was done in 1931. It was published in the journal of the American medical association. I think it was a British study and they, uh, were, were down studying the, uh, the Maasai and a neighboring tribe called the Akakuyu, which I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. So I apologize. And the interesting thing about this was that they lived right next to each other and they intermarried. So they had similar genetics, right? So genetically similar population and the Maasai are famously animal based. They eat meat, they drink blood and they drink milk and that's it. And, um, and the Akikuyu uh, actually ate a more plant-based diet. And so they were, and this is like, you know, they're eating tubers and leaves and nuts and seeds and, and grains and things like that. Uh, but, you know, this is the 1930s and 1920s. And so this wasn't big industrial crop farming with a bunch of chemicals and pesticides and fertilizers and things like that. This was a you know, vegan's dream. They're just out in the middle of Africa on a, on a commune, just growing their own plants and things like that and very little meat. And they found the differences were quite staggering. Uh, between the two populations. So again, genetically similar population and the Maasai adult men were on average five inches taller, 23 pounds heavier of lean body mass uh, because they're, they're lean as hell. If you see a picture of these guys, there's not a stitch of fat on them and they were 50% stronger. And the Akikuyu had bone deformities, jaw de developmental deformities, uh, tooth deformities. They were getting cavities and dental abscesses. They were getting diabetes and other sorts of uh, you know, chronic disease issues. 
that uh, the, the Maasai simply were not getting any of these things. And they had a lot of other health issues as well. They were, they were much more uh, susceptible to infections. They were getting chest infections uh, and ulcers as well. And they found they had a number of different uh, vitamin deficiencies and nutrient deficiencies. And so they said, oh, okay, well, that's what's going on here. We'll replace these nutrients. And so they replaced the nutrients, got them all back to normal levels, and that actually didn't help their health outcomes. They were still getting sick. They were still having a hard time. And it wasn't until they replaced what they were eating with meat, they got rid of the plants or a lot of the plants and started feeding them a lot more meat, and then their health improved. They stopped getting infections. They stopped getting sick. They stopped get, having their teeth rot. And so you know, you have, you have a direct comparison with a genetically similar population alive at the same time in the same area, and they're eating whole food plant-based diet versus a whole food meat-based diet, and you have clear differences in outcome. You have clear differences in development of, of the children into adults, and you have this reversible nature where you just you, you add in meat and you take away plants and they get better. Just the supplements weren't enough. Right. There was something in the in the plants that were harming them or they, you know, th there were other nutrients that they needed to get from the meat that they were missing as well. So, you know, that is a that is as good of evidence as we have for this direct comparison on on vegan versus uh, carnivore diet. What kind of meat matters here? Are we talking muscle meat, organ meat, etc., or variety? Well, I mean, variety is fine. Um, and you're predominantly you just need you know muscle meat uh, muscle meat and fat that's that's all you need and we we've known that for a while now um there was an explorer that went uh, he was a polar explorer he's a professor at harvard in ethnology and he and he uh as a Wilhelmer Stefansson. he wrote a book called the fat of the land and he lived ago. with the inuit yeah exactly yeah yeah exactly yeah 100 years ago and he uh he spent 12 years up with the inuit and the eskimo and he he, he lived like them and he said that he was stranded there for a while he didn't get picked up and so he just had to you know you know uh bite through the winter there with them and he was just eating what they were eating he was just eating meat fat fish and he said he never felt better and he was like oh maybe there's something to this and he started investigating this and studying this a lot more and as he said, you know, you don't need to eat the organs. That's not that's not required. You get everything you need from the lean and the fat, but you have to have the lean and the fat. That's that's complete nutrition. And the, you know, the Inuit don't eat the organs of uh, you know seals and whales and and polar bear. Uh, you know, probably because you know, there's such a concentration of fat soluble vitamins in the liver and the organs that they're actually toxic. So there's so much vitamin A in a polar bear liver that it it will kill you. It has a it has a toxic fatal level of vitamin a in its liver so they just don't eat it they, they would feed that to the dogs and, uh, and the dogs dogs do fine on that and they do uh, better on on lean meat than we do we need we need a lot more fat than canines and felines um and uh, you know other other tribes you know would but you know uh, they keep it in proportion so you know if you take down a you know uh, an eland or something like that you've got a lot, enough meat to last you months and your family for months and it's got one liver, right? Just just the one, and so the proportionality is such that you're going to get, you know, a hundred times more skeletal muscle meat and fat than you will that liver. And so I think you sort of keep it in that proportion because you can still get too much of a good thing, and you can get an overabundance of vitamin A and and other fat soluble vitamins, especially because they build up and they're harder to excrete. Uh, if you have too much, uh, unlike water soluble vitamins, like you know, be the bees and the seas. And so I, I just really just eat muscle meat and fat. And if you, someone is deficient or they're coming from a, you know, a standard Western diet with a bunch of processed garbage, they're overfed and undernourished, um, then, you know, your liver is probably your best friend. You know that thing's going to catch you up, and you know, especially if you're eating a, like a vegetarian diet or not, you don't want to eat a lot of meat. You just want to eat a whole food, plant-based diet. And uh, but you're know, you're willing to have some. You know, then or then organ meat is a great thing to do because it is very nutrient dense. You're going to get a lot of bang for your buck. Um, and so you know, to catch people up, maybe you know, liver is a good idea early on. Uh, but I, I think I've had liver maybe three times in the last decade. And uh, I'm doing fine, and all my all my vitamins and minerals and everything like that are are in perfect level and, and perfect balance. So, in, unless someone's coming just from the start, or they're they're clearly 
vitamin and nutrient deficient. Uh, I don't think you you have to have the organs, but if you want some, you know, you'll go for it. Just keep it in proportion with the animal. I go hunting every year. Um, so I guess I'm already off to a good start. How important, Anthony, yeah. is, is free range meat? Well, it's, it's, I think it is the best. And I think that you can objectively say that, you know, it has a higher concentration of a lot of different micronutrients and it has a better constellation of even the macronutrients. So the different, uh, uh, fatty acids that, um, are, uh, different in, in, you know, if the animal's eating what it's supposed to eat, it's obviously going to be healthier. and It's going to have a more dense nutrients because it's designed to eat that. It's designed to get those nutrients out of it. Whereas if they're eating, you know, corn or pellets or grain, they're not designed to eat that. That's not a complete nutrition. And this is what the vegans will say. Well, you know, cows are given B12 shots and then you're getting B12 from the meat. So might as well just skip the middleman. Fair enough. But a cow eating grass doesn't get B12 shots. You know, koalas in the wild don't get B12 shots, right? They get everything they need from the food that they're eating. And so you'll get a better complement. You'll get a better um, omega-3 to omega-6 ratio in meat in general. Plants have a horrible omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. And but if you're if you're grain feeding cows, you start losing that. And so there's some studies that, that show that after three months uh, in a feedlot just eating grain, that that a cow can lose most of its uh, omega-3s. So that that does make a difference. But but at the same time, if you don't, not everyone has access to that. Not everyone ha has access to, uh, you know, free you know, game or, uh, you know, free range animals that are grass fed and grass finished on regenerative farm. Regenerative farm makes a huge difference too. You can see this in the meat. They actually do testing and they have like three, four times the number of micronutrients in, in the, the meat available and just tastes better. It has a stronger, beefier flavor because you're just, you're tasting those nutrients. And, um, but so yes, that's the best. That's you know the gold medal at the Olympics, but grain finished beef is the silver medal at the Olympics, right? That's how I think about it. And while silver lost to gold, silver also beat everyone else on Earth. So it's actually still a pretty strong position to be in, and you can still get everything that you need from that. I predominantly eat uh, grain finished beef because that's what I have access to uh, here in Perth. You know, I just go to Costco, I buy in bulk. Uh, sometimes there there are you know grass fed and finished things available at different stores and I'll, I'll pick that up. Um, but it's not, I don't always have access to it. So if you have access to it, that's great, but, but you don't have to break the bank and you don't have to, it, it's not all or nothing, you know, grain finished beef is still far better than any plant you'll ever eat. I have found that the carbo loading argument is complete nonsense because I, I do old school training up in my home gym, you know, with a barbell and all that, all that sort of prison style stuff. I haven't found any <laughs> any deterioration in my performance. Yeah, well, and, and you won't. I mean, I, I certainly didn't notice that at all in my performance. In fact, I found the exact opposite. My my athletic performance uh, just went through the roof, and now my recoveries are nearly instant. I don't even get sore after a workout. I'm 43 years old. I can do you know a heavy leg day, and I you know and go for a jog the next day. It's not. It, it does not cause soreness now. That soreness is those inflammatory markers in plants that are trying to deter you from eating them, making you stiff, swollen, sore, and in pain so that you you eat that and you go, oh my God, that, that made me feel bad. I'm not gonna eat that plant again. And that's a, a natural deterrent. And so you just, you just steer clear of that again. But we've all been eating this stuff our whole life. So we've always been sore after working out and that's just normal. Uh, it's not normal. It actually doesn't need to happen. That's for some reason. That's the thing that pisses people off the most when they hear me say that. You know, seeing the comments, I probably get some comments on this. Oh, that's bullshit. You get sore. You know, like, I, okay, I don't. You know, and you don't have to either. You know, if you just stop eating all plants, just eating eat water for a month, you will see. It doesn't matter how hard you work out, you will not get sore unless you injure yourself. And so, you know, don't injure yourself. But my my exercise. Uh, tolerance has, has just gone through the roof. Um, I don't, I don't get tired. I can, you know, I, you know, I, I put it to the test. I started doing just set after set after set of, of heavy legs. I ended up doing 32 sets of heavy legs and, uh, you know, 20 sets of squats in there because I was just trying to wear my legs out. Cause I was like, why am I not getting sore? Am I just, you know, just working out like a bitch or something like that? Like I need to, I need to like do something really, you know, just destroy my legs. And, and so I, I did, I just, I just kept doing set after set after set. I tried to wear myself out and I just realized I could literally do this the rest of the night, but I've been here four hours and I've got shit to do. So I need to go. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, 
you know, the next day I felt fine. And I felt like I hadn't even done a workout. I was take, going up the stairs. I was like, you know, nothing's, nothing's changed. And that started taking two at a time. I was like, well, okay. You know, you know, my hammy's like, I guess I can feel something there, but I felt great. I was like, great. I'm going to go hiking. Went hiking up this mountain by where I live and lived in Washington, not called Mount Si, which is a horrible hike, but it was fine. And, uh, and I just, you know, day after I did this heavy leg set, uh, and then I, I felt so good. I said, right, now's the time to go to play rugby. And so I went to rugby practice that night and, uh, just challenged myself. I was like, okay, well, how hard can I go? You know, when I was in my twenties, I just went as hard as I could, uh, for as long as I could. And it's let, let's see if I can do that again. And I could do it again. And, um, and I was very out of shape. I was not, I had not run in a long time and, but I felt great. And two days after that, I still didn't feel sore. And I went to a coffee shop and met some friends. And so I said, okay, you know, can I have coffee? How does coffee affect me? And so I tried one cup of black coffee and within 20 minutes, I started getting sore again. My back was sore. My hamstrings were sore. I'm like, what, what is happening? I could feel it in real time building up. And after that, I was sore for two days after that off one cup of coffee. It wasn't, it wasn't horrible. It wasn't, you know, anywhere near what it should have been, what it normally would have been. But, you know, I could feel it and it, it annoyed me. And so I was just like, all right, well, I, coffee's clearly got something in it that doesn't agree with me. So I'm just going to cut that out. And so, you know, I, I find this massive difference. And there are a number of top athletes around the world that have discovered this. I know, you know, uh, Professor Tim Noakes, who's, who advocates for athletes using a ketogenic diet, which is what a carnivore diet is. And anyone who studied biochemistry should know this. I mean, I studied, I took biochemistry in my undergraduate degree. And, you know, we, we learn about that. You learn about the different metabolic states and energy mobilization. When you're eating carbohydrates, we call that a fed state. You eat all these carbohydrates, your insulin goes up and that puts the, the carbohydrates in your cells and you use that. And then you keep topping yourself up with carbohydrates because when insulin's up, it forces energy into cells. It doesn't allow it to come out of cells. So you block lipolysis, you block proteolysis. It's you, you, all the fat in your body is now locked and you can't access it. So you have to keep feeding the beast. You have to keep eating carbs. Whereas when you don't do that, and we know this, this is in biochemistry textbooks, in all biochemistry textbooks, anyone can look this up. After 24 hours, your insulin level goes down low enough. You start mobilizing your fat stores. You start making uh, blood sugar and liver glycogen through a process in your liver called gluconeogenesis, and you start producing ketones, which are actually the preferred energy source for a number of tissues in your body, including your heart and your brain. So really the two most important organs that you have going are, um, uh, you know, are, are primarily uh, well, they preferentially run on ketones, I should say, because when your ketones are so suppressed, they'll still run on ketones, but they, it's not enough to run on them completely. So they have to top it up with glucose. But when your ketone level goes up high enough, even if you have an abundance of glucose, your brain will exclusively run on ketones. That means it prefers ketones. It's going to run on the ketones first. And if it needs to, it will use glucose. So you actually work better. And so as, as Prof Noakes showed, um, once you're fat adapted, keto adapted, your body's making ketones and blood sugar and glycogen properly, which for me was right away. I felt amazing right away. Uh, but for some people it can take up to three weeks. Uh, he found that they had the exact same push and energy potential and, and exercise potential. They could just go just as hard as people who were eating carbohydrates. And then they flipped the groups and the people who were eating carbs started going on keto. And the guys who were doing keto flipped and started eating carbs again. They got fat adapted, did it again, no drop in their performance. So, you know, this is, you're not going to have a drop in your performance. And the benefit is, is that now you have access to your fat stores. So you'll never run out of the carbs that you're eating. So your insulin is down at normal levels. You can mobilize your fat stores. You can mobilize your own body's ability to uh, produce glycogen and, and uh, glucose. And so you can just keep going and going and going until you run out of fat stores, which is extremely hard to do. No one's going to do that in any length marathon, you know, because we have, we have weeks of energy, even in someone who's very slim, you know, unless you're emaciated on the verge of starvation and death, you've got weeks of energy available to you in your fat store. So you can just go and go and go and go. And so there are a number of endurance athletes. I know in, in South Africa, there's, there's Sean Seiko, who, who I think is also affiliated with the, the Noakes Foundation. And he's an elite endurance athlete. The guy's 50 years old and he's winning 200 mile or 200 kilometer uh, endurance cycle races 
completely fasted on no food and he doesn't refuel. He doesn't take all those little sugary packets and drinks and things like that. Uh, he just goes, he just does it completely fasted. And he, and he, yeah, he got fifth in one of them, like over in Jordan or something like that and horrible extreme heat. And he was just like, just going. Everyone was like, Oh my God. And like sucking down these sugar packets. And he was just like, hmm, all right. And he just kept going. And so, and he's doing that at 50 years old. He's putting out, I think he was, he had a calorie burn rate of a thousand calories an hour at one point, which is like tour de France level output, you know, and, and he was doing completely fasted. So you can, there are a number of these examples. There's uh, there's an American decathlete in, uh, at the university of Michigan, who I spoke to, or I've been speaking to the last year and a half. He went carnivore a year ago and his athletic performance just started going crazy. He said that he, he finally was turning into the athlete he always wanted to be. And his second decathlon ever, he'd been, a, I think he was a pole vaulter before that, second decathlon ever, and he was on Carnivore now, he won the uh, Big Ten NCAA one championship and earned All-American honors, set a school record, and was close to Olympic qualifying uh, score for his, his decathlon performance. So that was massive. And uh, you know, talking to him now, he's saying he's just getting bigger and stronger and faster. And, uh, and he's just, you know, he said it was actually, it was a problem because he's saying he actually puts on muscle too easily and too quickly that he has to like sort of tone it back because he, he's just, it's like, it's too much of a good thing. And he's getting too bulky because he just, he just, you know, kills it in the gym and he's just, he's just putting on too much weight. So he's like, okay, I've got to, I've got to tone it back now and lean down so I can keep my speed and things like that. So, you know, there's a number of people, there's a number of top level rugby players, internationals uh in america as well as in australia and new zealand who do this they keep it hush hush because you know they want to they want to keep that advantage uh, but there are some that have, have come out and been more open about that um and uh, and it's, it, you know, it's gaining more and more interest uh in people as well and everyone who tries it everyone that i know all the athletes and friends that i've had who give this a try they all tell me that they get much better results athletically when I was growing up, I was always told that if you eat too much meat, you're going to end up with uh, liver problems, I think. Hmm. That's a new one. Um, uh, I've certainly heard kidney problems. I've certainly uh, heard... Sorry, I'm, I meant to say kidney problems. problems. I meant to say kidney problems, sorry. Okay, yeah. So, like, yeah, because, like, people will say that, you know, high-protein diet is bad for the kidneys. Hmm. Uh, that was conjecture. That was not actually based on any actual studies or science. It, it's funny. In medicine, I've come to... I've come to recognize that a lot of things in medicine, we basically make a best guess. So we have an idea about the physiology and we look at this and go like, mm, you know, this, this, this makes sense if, you know, this were to be true. And we just sort of do that because we have no way of testing it and checking it. We don't have a study. So we just, on, on the best available information, we're just going to say, Hey, why don't we do this? So that was, that was, that was what this was. So they're saying that you know, you, you have to cleave off nitrogen from amino acids and then you turn that into ammonia, then you turn that into urea. And that's a marker that we use for kidney function as well as creatinine. And so if that goes up, then that's harder for your kidneys to uh, excrete. And so that means that it's going to be harder on your kidneys. Your kidneys are going to have to work harder to get rid of this stuff. So that was the idea, but the actual studies have shown exactly the opposite. So the studies have shown that the more protein someone eats, the better their kidney function gets. And that's exactly what I see in practice when people go on a, on a carnivore diet, a high fat, high protein, well, proportion of calories, it's, it's mostly fat, but it's, it's a lot more protein than most people are eating. So I still consider it a higher protein diet as well. And uh, because it is in comparison to a uh, standard diet, certainly a vegan diet. And so in these people, their, their kidney function is, is getting better. And I've actually seen people in end stage renal, renal failure, uh, improve and actually get back to normal kidney function. A good friend of mine actually uh, went through that, and I, I he had 19% kidney function. He was 35, and he was sort of saying that it, like his daughter was four years old, and he was just like, you know, I'm not going to be alive. I'm not going to be able to watch my daughter graduate high school. You know, my kidneys are just getting worse. And he's doing everything that he's, that his doctors told him. Taking a bunch of medications. He's going basically plant based, eating less and less protein because he's like you have to eat like no protein. You have to go plant based, and and uh, this is the only thing that's going to help. And you're just getting worse and worse and worse. And their argument is, well, imagine if you didn't take my advice, how bad you'd be. Okay. So I talked to him and said, well, look, it could be the opposite. In fact, there are studies showing that more protein is better for your 
your kidney health. So I sent them those studies. And there are a lot of these plant toxins like oxalates that can damage your kidney. Here are the studies showing that. And so he said, you know what? I've got nothing to lose. I'm only getting worse with these guys' recommendation. You know, let's give it a try. Within three months, he had he was back up to 80% kidney function. And his doctor, like, oh, you're going to kill you. This is going to like you. You are arguing with the facts in front of your face. You know, his his kidney function is just getting worse doing what that doctor recommended. He does the opposite, and his kidney function gets better. The doctor's like, your kidneys are going to are going to explode if you keep doing that. What are you looking at in front of you? You are seeing the opposite of what your recommendations would would have predicted. Your recommendations are bad. You know, as, as Richard Feynman, the physicist, said, it doesn't matter how brilliant your theory is, and it doesn't matter how smart you are. If it doesn't agree with experiment, it's wrong. And so these things are wrong. And unfortunately, not everyone knows that. Unfortunately, there's a lot of kidney specialists that don't even know that higher protein diets are actually better for your kidneys. It's in the literature. I've actually seen, this is anecdotal, but I have seen three people now go on a carnivore diet and come off dialysis. That's not supposed to happen. That is not supposed to happen. You know, we tell people that like, once you go on dialysis, that's, that's sort of it. It's funny too, because they're on dialysis. Their kidneys don't work at all, right? They're not making any urine. And, and so their doctor says, you know, to them, it's like, you can't eat this high protein diet. You're going to, you're going to kill yourself. You're, well, you're certainly not going to make your kidneys any worse because they're already gone. They already don't work at all. So, I mean, what are you going to do? You know, what, what's, what's that going to do to your kidneys? Even if it did make your kidney function work, you have no kidney function. So it's, it was a bit, it's always been a funny to me. Uh, one lady, but it takes months. I mean, it takes a long time. One lady, it took eight months, eight or nine months before she started, but she started making urine again. And then she, all of a sudden she was able to come off dialysis and her kidney function started getting a little better and a little better and a little better and a little better. And so that is absolutely incredible. And it actually lines up with the literature. The literature states very clearly higher protein diets actually improve kidney function. And there are a lot of these plants, toxins, that specifically are nephrotoxic, meaning they attack the kidneys. Oxalates, for instance, they're the leading cause of kidney stones and kidney damage from those stones. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, the, the evidence is just not in support of, of that statement. I've been waiting the whole conversation to drop in my, my dad joke and say that if you're on a terrible diet, yeah. go cold turkey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. um, Anthony, how can I follow you? Uh, yeah, so um, I, I'm mostly on YouTube. Uh, it's just Anthony Chafee, MD. That's where I get all, all my videos. And then my podcast is just the Plant Free MD, and uh, that gets all my podcast episodes. And uh, and then my Instagram is just Anthony Chafee, MD, and that's where sort of my my main uh, social media. I'm on Twitter as well, just Anthony underscore Chafee. Um, and then I have a, a you know some links in my in my Instagram that goes to the rest of them. But those are the main ones. Anthony Chavey, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.